Coming up on Tech Nation, we're talking about adult stem cells. That's right, the ones that are in your body right now. And with that as a lead-off, we'll go further to talk about treating spinal cord injury, ovarian cancer, melanoma, glioblastoma, and would you believe it, a very different kind of vaccine for COVID-19. This COVID vaccine is not only original, it's designed to be affordable for economically disadvantaged countries. It all starts with one man, former UC Irvine professor, Dr. Hans Kirstedt, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with Bill Bryson about his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. While reading his book, it became clear to me that the history of how humans live their private lives is really the history of household technology. Well, I hadn't thought of it in those terms, but yeah, you're absolutely right. In fact, the history of houses is really, as the point I make in the book, is the history of everything. I mean, you can look at it, domesticity from a biological standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a technological standpoint, and, and yet we never look at it really from any standpoints. I mean, you know, the history of private life is something that doesn't get taught in schools. It doesn't really feature on any, any radar anywhere. And that was the whole idea of the book was that, you know, I had spent the whole of my formative years in school learning about the history of the world from the perspective of wars and diplomacy and big, kind of big global events, things happening on a big tapestry. But actually, when you stop and think about all of those things, where they ultimately end up, the achievements of, of history end up in our homes. And everybody has to be somewhere. So everybody has a home. Everybody has a home. And homes are oddly recognizable. I mean, I don't go on into this very much in the book, but it is a strange thing. When you, wherever you go in the world, if, you, you know, if you're just dropped into an unfamiliar uh, environment, you can recognize the homes. You can distinguish homes very quickly, even though a lot of times homes you know, are not terribly distinguishable in terms of architecture. There is something about an atmosphere of domesticity that we all know. And it's very, very hard to define what makes a house or what makes a residence because it can be so many different things. I mean, it can be all really essentially an infinite number of materials. It can be you know, any kind of shape. It can be all kinds of things. And yet we know a home when we see it. Now, your jumping off point is your actual home in England. Tell us about it. Well, the whole idea, Moira, was that that in 2003, after living in New Hampshire for eight years, I, I moved back to England with my English wife and kids, and, and we ended up living in a former Church of England parsonage uh, in, in Norfolk, in East Anglia. And while I was sitting there, uh, soon after we arrived, I was kicking around ideas for books. I needed to come up with an idea for a new book. And I was actually sitting at the kitchen table and just idly fingering the salt and pepper shakers on the table. And, it, and I thought, why, why those two? Why do we always have salt and pepper on every table I've ever kitchen table I've ever sat at. You know, I grew up in Des Moines, Iowa. We had salt and pepper on the table. I live in England now. We had salt and pepper on the table. Why Why those two? Why not salt and cinnamon or pepper and cardamom or any other combination of things? And that was my kind of starting point was thinking that, you know, actually, I don't know anything about houses and how they're organized and, and really the histories behind these everyday objects that we are immersed in all the time. So, so the whole idea of the book became, I'll make a trip 
I'll travel around my own house, this old parsonage in England, and I'll just go from room to room, and I'll, I write a history of the earth from the perspective of each room. So the bathroom would be a history of hygiene, and kitchen the history of cooking, bedroom would be sex and death and sleeping, whatever happened in history in those rooms, and, and see where that takes us. And I had no idea what I, what I might be embarking upon. And how old is the parsonage? It was, it was built in 1851, so it's about 160 years. And you had blueprints from the original parsonage. You know, I was lucky that it was a Church of England property because that meant we had a pretty good record of both the original plans had been saved because the Church of England held on to all of these things because um, otherwise they might have been lost at some point in, in, in the last century and a half. And also we had a, a, a complete record of, of occupants from, you know, we knew the, the names of all of, through the Church of England, knew the names of all the, the rectors who had lived in this house from, from 1851 up until the 1970s when it was sold off. Church of England found it very hard to keep these grand old parsonages. It was, they're, they're quite expensive houses for, for um, you know, country parsons. And so they beginning in, well, the early 20th century, they began to sell them off little by little. You've been listening to a 2010 Tech Nation interview with Bill Bryson about his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. With the COVID-19 pandemic and global sheltering in place, the technologies in our home are distinctly unprecedented. Bill Bryson's latest book is The Body, A Guide for Occupants. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with former UC Irvine professor, Dr. Hans Kierstedt, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. Building on his doctoral work, we'll talk about how he was the first to direct adult stem cells to become not just any cell in your body, but a specific type of cell essential to recovery from spinal cord injury. We travel along his personal path into treatments currently in clinical trials for ovarian cancer, for the skin cancer melanoma, and for that aggressive form of brain cancer known as glioblastoma. Then, responding to the need for vaccines during the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Kierstedt and his group have now developed their own vaccine for COVID-19. Notably, in an unprecedented departure in vaccine development, Part of the design for this COVID vaccine is to be able to manufacture it just about anywhere, in small batches, in simple conditions, by easily trained personnel, all with an eye to making it not only accessible to everyone, but affordable to economically disadvantaged countries. And beyond affordable, it leaves most of the cost of vaccine remaining within the country itself, increasing the country's economic stability and even creating an economic stimulus for its people. The first nation to embrace this concept, the government of Indonesia. Today, Avita's COVID vaccine is entering phase two clinical trials. 
Tech Nation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Dr. Hans Kirstead. Well, Hans, welcome to the program. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Now, there's a lot to this story that have to do with stem cells. And a lot of people out there say, what, what's a stem cell? Don't we have a problem with stem cells? What are stem cells? So I, I thought I'd better start there. <laughs> well, I've got a long history in stem cells. They are, you know, stem cells 101 is basically a sperm and an egg get together, makes a stem cell and makes you. So every single tissue in your body was made from a stem cell. And you still retain some as an adult. And those are called adult stem cells. So I've become a specialist in extracting them, manipulating them, and getting them to become what we want to become. Well, you have these stem cells. They can become anything in your body, right? They can. They are the thing that made you. Every cell in your body derives from a stem cell. And you were the, the bloke, as they say, that was <laughs> first to force a stem cell to become a particular thing in your body. What exactly does that mean? Well... It's exciting that stem cells can become everything, but that concept doesn't really mean much in the field of therapeutics or discovery unless you can take that cell that becomes anything and make it become something in particular, pure heart cells, pure liver cells, pure brain or spinal cord. Now you've got something that you could transplant into a human. You've also got something that you could dump drugs on and see that your drug is working particularly on a heart cell, for example. If you have a diverse number of cells in that dish or in that vial or in that needle, you don't know what's doing the real job. Is your drug working on the heart cells or is it working on some contaminant in your population? So the discovery of a method to take a stem cell that can become anything, but make it become one pure adult population, like heart cells, liver, brain, whatever, that was a major breakthrough. So it was um, really kind of the, it was really the thing that made my career. Now, Hans, I have to say, like any human, once you figure out a tool, you got to use it. Once you got a hammer, you gotta find, you're in search of a nail. What was your first application? So, okay, let's go out and do something with this tool. You know, I was very attracted to treat spinal cord injury for a number of reasons. You know, the spinal cord is accessible. You can get at it. When it's hurt, you lose the ability of your legs to move. So it's easy to measure whether it's hurt or whether it's healing. If you do something to your brain, it's harder. It's very difficult to assess what's going on there. For example, you can't ask a rat how they're feeling today as a result of your treatment. So I I approached spinal cord injury using stem cell transplantations. I studied spinal cord injury, both in humans and rodents, and I discovered that during the pathogenesis after injury, what happens from the time that it gets hit with a blunt trauma, for example, a car accident or whatever, until the person is fully paralyzed and stable in that condition. So I studied the evolution of spinal cord injury and I discovered very early on that a very particular cell type is lost first. I thought if I can spare that, perhaps I can stop the process of degeneration that's happening. So I used human stem cells. 
and I made them into that cell type. You know, to be honest, I didn't realize that it was the first time in the world that anybody had done that. I also needed them to be pure because I couldn't put this particular spinal cord cell type into a human or prior to that, a rat, before knowing that they were pure. You can't go putting toenails into the spinal cord. So I then pushed myself and my team to come up with a method of not only making spinal cord cells from stem cells, but rather making them in purity. And it happened to be the first time in the world that anyone had ever made a pure population of something that's useful to the adult. You can't go putting stem cells in the spinal cord because the stem cell will react to that environment. It listens and it becomes what the environment tells it to. And in, a, in an environment of a injured spinal cord, that likes to make scar. So if you put stem cells in there, you'll just get more scar. Rather, if you put the cell population that's missing those spinal cord cell types, they're committed. They can only become what they were born to be. So I took stem cells, human, made them into this particular spinal cord cell type, and paralyzed rats walked again. That was one heck of a good video. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it was something that everyone deep scientist to politician could understand by watching. So it became very big news and we eventually moved that into humans. And I'm just so, so honored and proud to say that we've treated over 20, I believe it's 24 humans now with spinal cord injuries and transplanted this very same cell population that made the rats walk again. And what it did to humans is return their ability of motor and sensory use of their hands and arms and their feet with 50% of the dose. These were people who had no motor or sensory control below their chin. So quite a devastating injury, zero motor, zero sensory. We put 50% of the anticipated dose. We start slow and then go big. And there was no ill effects, no adverse events at all. And every one of the patients regained use of their arms and hands and, and their feet. And then we began to transplant with 100% of the dose and saw the beginnings of function below the arms. So sex, bladder, bowel, the things that actually really matter to a patient that has an injury. And that was just extremely exciting, Moira. But amazingly, the market hit us. You know, there's too few spinal cord injured patients in the world. There's too few in any one country to invest the billions of dollars that it takes to make a treatment. So although we moved from rats into humans and saw this tremendous benefit to these humans, and, you know, it made my, my, my day, it made my year it made my career it just uh, I'll, it's one of my greatest accomplishments honestly i feel so good for those individuals but i am so devastated that market forces prevented us from moving it forward into the greater population at 100% market penetration the spinal cord injury market is about 300 million a year in the united states that sounds like a big number but big pharmaceutical companies won't touch anything unless it's over a billion. So there's, there's no way to fund this thing 
but to hook it onto the back of a larger market indication and carry it along. So that's what I went on to do. You've been listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is former UC Irvine professor Dr. Hans Kierstead, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. His work in the field of spinal cord injury is widely recognized in the scientific literature as well as in mainstream media. He was identified as one of the top 100 scientists of the year by Discover Magazine and prominently featured by 60 Minutes in its one-hour special on spinal cord injury. Even so, turning this work into a commercial enterprise was stymied by economic realities. To move forward, Dr. Kierstead created a new plan. So you didn't abandon it, but you said, okay, great. I'll get the money off of profits from something else. We'll put the play on right here. <laughs> that <laughs> old trick. It. That <laughs> old trick. Okay, so you looked around and you say, okay, where can we bring in more money? I'm looking for another nail, said the hammer. Uh, what, what's the next thing? You're so right. You know, I, I started looking at what my core technologies of taking a stem cell, making it into something pure could do in another large market indication. And that brought me into the cancer field. There was a discovery that I didn't make, but some very brilliant scientists scattered throughout the world had begun to reveal. And that is the discovery, probably the greatest discovery ever made in cancer, that every single cancer is derived from a single cell, and that is a cancer stem cell, otherwise known as a tumor-initiating cell. And that cell comprises 1% of every single solid tumor. And the cancer stem cells in one person have thousands of unique mutations that no other person has. So your cancer stem cells are as unique as you are. And this is one of the reasons why cancer has been so difficult to conquer, because a single drug has to attack a variety of genetic makeups. And it's just too tough. So when I saw that, that the cancers are actually born from a stem cell, you know, I literally, I had this aha moment of thinking, well, I am a stem cell scientist. You got out your hammer. <laughs> <laughs> what can I do with this hammer? Yeah, that's a nice looking nail. I can hit that. <laughs> so I, I uh, used my core technologies with my team. And what we did was we took tumors from humans that had had stage three recurrent and stage four cancers, the latest stage, the hardest stage of cancers. And when they're getting things chopped out of them, they're getting their cancers removed from them, surgical resections. We just take a little tiny piece of that. And using my core technologies, I was able to extract that 1% get rid of the 99% that is birthed from that seed of cancer, that cancer stem cell, and isolate the cells that matter, isolate those cells that do the job. And, you know, these things do three things. They birth a tumor, clearly, and then they can leave that tumor, leaving daughters behind to grow the tumor, but run through your blood and make a distant tumor. And then the third thing that they do is perhaps the most insidious. They fall asleep in your bone marrow sometimes on the side of a blood vessel, and they sit there undividing, quiet, asleep for approximately seven years. 
And then those little buggers wake up. During that seven years, the patient thinks they're in remission. They are. There's no more cancer. They've cleared themselves. But seven years later, that little bugger wakes up, drops a bunch of daughters. Some become sleepers. Some become tumors. And that is recurrence. So when I discovered that or learned about that, I then applied my technologies and discovered a method of extracting those very cells from the 100%, pulled out that 1% and used that as the target. Fed those to the immune system in a dish, take a little bit of blood from the patient, extract the frontline warrior of your immune system, and then unite the two. You know, I, I call this thing intus, which is Latin for from within. I think it's kind of amazing that the drug that we make has nothing but what comes from the patient. It's the patient's own immune system that has been trained to kill the patient's own cancer stem cells. So you're taking these cancer stem cells from the person's tumor, and what do you do with them? You, don't, you must do something so that they can be killed. Do they just basically give you a signature of what the cancer is? What happens is that the we extract the cancer stem cells from the tumor in purity. So we grow them up in purity, about 150 million of them, and then we feed them to the patient's own immune system in a dish. That can't happen in the patient, but we can do it in a dish. So we injure the cancer stem cells by irradiating them, kind of blowing them up. And then all of the fragments get eaten by the patient's own immune system, internalized, processed, and then expressed on the surface. What we give back to the patient, what the drug actually is, is the patient's own immune system that has been particularly educated to go kill one thing only, which is the cancer stem cell. These immune cells that we use are called dendritic cells. Our drug is a dendritic cell, your dendritic cell, that has been educated to kill one thing. And what these things do once introduced back into your own bloodstream from whence they came, they act like the conductor of an orchestra, the orchestra being your immune system. They act like the general of all of the armed forces. They tell your immune system, go kill this thing using every one of the multiple destructive arms of one's immune system. And so you, you train your own immune system. It is an immunotherapy that has one target only, and that is your cancer stem cells. How do you get the patient's immune system into the dish so you can introduce it to the cancer stem cell? We developed a very nice, easy way to do it. Easy for doctors and nurses, for the patient. It's just a blood draw. So we just simply stick a needle in the, in the arm and into a vein and pull out a little bit of blood. And then it takes us about three weeks to purify out the cancer stem cells from a resected tumor and then purify the frontline warrior of the immune system, this dendritic cell. So about three weeks for cancer, and we have the drug. We've got the patient's own immune system educated to kill their own cancer stem cells. So the dendritic cells, they're, they're everywhere, and they're flowing through your blood. So you're extracting the dendritic cells from the patient as well. That's right. And then you put those dendritic cells in there. You educate them with, with these with the tumor, all the parts of the tumor, so it can recognize it. And the, those educated dendritic cells get 
reintroduced into your system. And they say, oh, hi, we know you. You're mm-hmm. one of our dendritic yeah. cells. Holy moly, you know things we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. Incredible. Yeah. Oh, I get that's a very simple concept when explained that way. Not easy to do, I have to say, Hans. But <laughs> It took a few, a few trials, many, many failures like everything in science, but we nailed it. It's this, you know, when we're taking the immune system out of your blood, it's high purity differentiation. We only purify the one thing. And then when we get a little bit of tumor from the patient, again, same technologies, purify the cancer stem cell, get rid of everything else, purify that one thing. And you can see that the underlying technologies were the same thing as we did for spinal cord injury effectively. And we've got a really, really nice drug. It caused no harm, no side effects to the patients. We've done hundreds of patients now, and the results have just been tremendous. What cancers have you approached? Where are you in trials? You know, we, uh, you know, being as, you know, managing hypomanic as I am, (laughs) I generally like to do a little bit too much. So we are in ovarian cancer, melanoma, and glioblastoma multiform, or brain cancer. With ovarian cancer, we're in what's called a phase two clinical trial. For the listeners who don't understand that, there's three trials, three stages of human trials. The first is a phase one where you test safety only. The second is a phase two where you're testing efficacy. Does it actually work? And then phase three, the last phase before commercialization, is just a phase two, but in more people. You're looking for contraindications. You're bringing multiple races in. You're bringing pregnant women. You're bringing men and women. You're bringing in people that may be taking other drugs. And you're looking for those contraindications that say, if you're taking our drug, don't take this other drug. And, um, but by the phase three, you are, you already know that the drug is safe and it works. So in ovarian cancer, we're in that second stage. We're just determining if it works and we don't have data yet in melanoma. We're actually at commercialization stage, just pre-commercialization. So we've already known that it is safe. We know that it works and we're just going through the final steps to commercialize. Very excited about that. So you've completed phase three. Yeah. You know, we actually started phase three and then moved it over to Japan because Japan has new laws that were put in a couple of years ago. I actually helped put those laws in place with a few other stem cell scientists around the world, and they expedite the commercialization of any drug that involves a stem cell. Um, you know, I helped write the laws. Clearly, I was being a little selfish there. <laughs> and so when they were put into place, I moved my program there. And uh, it's really the most advanced jurisdiction in the world for getting a stem cell into commercialization stage. So we actually ended up skipping most of the phase three and going right to the commercial, which we're just getting approval for soon. And how does the drug perform compared to the approved drugs in melanoma right now? It has um, just a phenomenally high efficacy in that 72% of people don't have cancer at two years. By five years, it's 54% of them don't have cancer. Those numbers are the highest of any drug that's ever been administered to melanoma patients. 
You've been listening to Dr. Hans Kirstead, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, Spotify, and Alexa Podcasts, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, I'll speak further with former UC professor Dr. Hans Kirstead, and yes, eventually we'll get to the development of Avita's COVID vaccine, currently in trials in Indonesia. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Hans Kirstead, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. You may have noted that Dr. Kirstead indicated that Avita has moved its melanoma effort from the U.S. to Japan, where the fast-track development of stem cell therapies has become a government priority. Following the awarding of the 2012 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine to Kyoto University stem cell scientist Shinya Yamanaka and seeking to become a world leader in regenerative medicine research, the Japanese government passed several laws which enabled stem cell therapies to be conditionally approved after some early phase clinical trials demonstrating that they are safe and that they are likely to predict efficacy. This enables a treatment to be nationally marketed in Japan and to receive insurance payments. The company has a total of seven years to continue to collect data and prove efficacy scientifically. In short, the final clinical trial is conducted in parallel with its release for public availability. This is a departure from what we are used to in the United States where a significant multi-phase trial system is in place to ensure that a treatment must not only be safe, it must work before members of the public may have access to it. Yet Japan's safety before proven efficacy approach is gaining traction in a number of countries, including India and China. How this will ultimately impact the global pharmaceutical industry remains to be seen.
When we left our interview, Dr. Kierstead had been describing the results of the Phase two clinical trials for melanoma. 72% of people don't have cancer at two years. By five years, it's 54% of them don't have cancer. Those numbers are the highest of any drug that's ever been administered to melanoma patients. And I'm so, so happy to say that we also see very similar results in brain cancer. So kind of hot off the press here is that we've just finished a phase two clinical trial in brain cancer, glioblastoma multiform. Is that with the the FDA? Yes. Yeah. uh, In the United States and the FDA. And we have just finished this and we have 38% fewer deaths just a phenomenal result. And in fact, that number is larger than any drug in brain cancer to date. So you get um, radiation and you get chemotherapy and they help a little bit. Nothing has caused a 38% increase prior to us. So I'm just so excited. And we've been liaising with the United States FDA And we asked them in what's called a pre-phase three meeting, end of phase two meeting, may we stop and move forward and apply for a phase three? And their advice was yes. So we are now just finalizing a phase three application. And with this type of roadmap from the FDA, we're high, we've got a high confidence level that we'll be granted that and we'll be able to treat more people. I'm always concerned with cancer drugs about the adverse events, the side effects, the downsides, because cancer treatment has had a history of of just being very difficult to undergo in and of itself. Oh, my goodness. You know, I, I hear what you're saying all the time. There's a phrase out there, you know, I survived cancer treatment, you know, for a cancer patient that's gone through chemotherapy and or and or radiation those treatments are so brutal it's really you know what i call two by four medicine where you just whack the person over the head and see if something changes and that's what chemotherapy and radiation are it's a very gross broad insult to the body and you're trying to kill the cancer but you're also killing a whole lot else and the pain and hardship that cancer sufferers face and go through, it's nothing short of heroic. We've got a drug here that has virtually no side effects. Occasionally, a person will have a little bit of nausea for for a day, and that's it. And that's very, very rare. So the vast majority of patients feel no side effects whatsoever. And those that do have just a very small bit of nausea for about a day. It's really quite extraordinary. That's actually telling you that your immune system's working. So we're very pleased. Now along comes COVID. <laughs> I bet your I bet your mind was churning then. What, <laughs> you what know, did you were, were you able to do anything about COVID? Yeah, you know, I literally had a 3 a.m. epiphany, bolted up out of bed, thinking, you know, rather embarrassed to say this, well. I actually run a vaccine company. Oh, <laughs> Why don't I attack this? And um, so, you know, I got together with my team and I literally got in that morning, super excited, called, called my whole team together. 
and they're quite used to me coming up with uh, grand visionary ideas and they grabbed an extra cup of coffee. What now? What now, Hans? <laughs> what now? <laughs> and uh, my chief science officer was thinking the same thing. You know, why don't we do this? We already run a vaccine company. We must have the ability to. So it's actually very straightforward for us. You see, we're using the the orchestra conductor of your immune system, this dendritic cell. So we just replicated that technology. And instead of filling it full of cancer markers from the patient, it's actually a lot easier. We pay a company to synthesize using human recombinant technology, it's called, just making up the SARS-CoV-2 antigens, of course. This is viral recombinant proteins. And we load them into the dendritic cells. So it's actually much, much easier and much, much faster than our cancer vaccine. Our COVID-19 vaccine can be made in under a week. We take a blood draw from the patient and then we sprinkle on the bug proteins, the SARS-CoV-2 antigens. And what's very unique about this is that a dendritic cell can take a massive payload. We can put tons of this stuff in. We can put the full spike one and the spike two proteins and all of the receptor binding domains. And it's not one copy or five copies. It's hundreds and thousands of copies that we can load up that patient's dendritic cells with. And what we're giving back to them is their own dendritic cell and nothing else. It's been educated. It's sat in classrooms listening. It's got its degree and now it's back into the field, into the body and there are no foreign viral proteins. In a dish, when we sprinkle on the SARS-CoV-2 antigens, they get internalized. They get eaten by these dendritic cells and broken down into small little fragments combined with something called major histocompatibility complexes expressed through a lot of cellular machinery and then put onto the surface of the cell. There are no free-floating antigens, and this is just given subcutaneously. So there is no arm pain. There is no fever and nausea and all of those other side effects that come along with other vaccines that flood your bloodstream with viral proteins. Your immune system freaks out. We're being attacked. Some small percentage of those viral proteins in other vaccine producers vaccines, some small percentage gets into the patient's own dendritic cells. The rest causes nonspecific havoc. And that's why there's all of this side effects with everyone else's vaccines. Our vaccine doesn't have any of that. It's your own dendritic cell loaded and processed with SARS-CoV-2 antigens, no free-floating viral proteins. What you get is a subcutaneous, not intramuscular, subcutaneous injection and you are vaccinated. This dendritic cell causes immune memory immediately. What we have is a vaccine that induces vaccination instantly. It doesn't take three to six weeks like other vaccines. It's very fast. Now, the other vaccines, we're talking Pfizer, we're talking Moderna, and we're talking Johnson & Johnson right now, AstraZeneca, you know, China has one, Russia has one, there are a set of vaccines out there. These are general vaccines, which are meant generally to go to 
anyone to evoke this response. That's right. All of the other vaccine producers fall into two categories. It's genetic engineering of your muscle, like Pfizer and Moderna, or it is protein, throwing in lots of protein into your blood, like Sinovac, um, AstraZeneca. So they're actually putting in viruses that make a lot of protein. The other ones, like Moderna and Pfizer, are putting in genetic material in your own muscle that takes over your muscle and then produces the protein. But they all result in massive amounts of viral protein in your blood system that is responsible for much of the side effects like headache and nausea and chills and that type of thing. Our vaccine is your immune system primed. We just give it back to you and you have an immune system that immediately induces immune memory, which is vaccination. But you can see the problem in that you have to find every person extract their dendritic cells and go through this process to give it back to them. That's a nightmare for 6 billion, 7 billion people on the planet. I don't think that dendritic cell vaccines would ever make the mainstay unless it was a global pandemic, something that can hurt and maim and have lasting um, deficits such as SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. We are in a situation where we have economic depression rippling through every single nation in the world. And everyone knows somebody now who has fallen sick. And you probably also know somebody who has lasting deficits from this. I'm a neuroscientist. You know, I'm particularly interested in these lingering effects of the brain, mostly subclinical, but pathology that lasts. The latest information from COVID that we have with regards to the brain is that it takes off about a decade of your brain life. So you are experiencing a degeneration, a forced advanced aging in your brain. How is this going to play out as we all approach that age where Alzheimer's begins to set in, which is advanced aging? So we don't want to get COVID. And everybody, I believe, is willing to take a little bit of blood, come back one week later, our vaccine is different in that we do require the blood draw, but we're still only touching the patient twice and one week apart. And what I've done is really looked at this first wave of vaccines and like a good scientist, sit back and let all the data come in. And what we're seeing with all of the current vaccines that are being distributed is tremendous disparity in access. We have poor countries that have not received a single vaccine. I think it was just a couple of weeks ago that the Director General of the World Health Organization called out that 130 countries representing 2.5 billion people have yet to have a single vaccine in the entire country. So there's a tremendous disparity. And there's also economic recessions. If you're the president of a country, can you really afford to continue to lose billions of dollars every year to a company in America or England or China? You can't do that. It's not sustainable. And we are going to be living with this bug for the rest of our time. This bug mutates. It's always going to require vaccination like the flu. 
and we will always be with this. So looking forward, we've got not only disparities in access, but we also have an inability of most countries to be able to afford to pour out this type of money constantly and drive the development of monopolies amongst vaccine companies. So what I did was I developed something a little bit different. You see, we don't actually make the vaccine. We make a little kit that allows anybody to make the vaccine on your kitchen counter, if you will. So we can actually make a kit in your country. We can hire a kit assembly company right there in Indonesia or wherever. We can put 50 of them up, a thousand of them up, and they buy little bits and pieces of the kit components. Clearly, we supply the main brain of it, but there is no global supply crunch. We can actually source about 90% of the kit components from within any country manufactured right there. So if the president of a country gives us a billion dollars to make vaccines, we actually spend the vast majority of that money right in their country, sourcing from their manufacturers, being taxed, creating jobs. Our vaccine purchase results in an economic stimulus. Clearly, we pull off profits, but that is a very small fraction of what the vaccine costs and what we are recircling circulating within that country's economy. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is former UC Irvine professor, Dr. Hans Kirsted, the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical. Just to make sure I understood, I asked Dr. Kirsted if he would permit me to restate the vaccine proposition he just laid out in my own words. So if a country wanted to buy $1 billion of vaccine today, if they had a billion dollars, they would pay the vaccine manufacturer and the billion dollars would leave the country. The money's gone. But with the plan you are proposing, all the elements of the kits, save the basic Avita product, could be sourced inside that country so that if a country wanted to buy $1 billion of Avita vaccine, they would pay Avita $100 million for the basic product of special COVID antigens. And yes, that $100 million leaves their country. But the other $900 million stays within their national economy, protects their economy, even creates an internal economy of its own and an economic stimulus, if you will. You've got it. It creates economic churn within the very country that is choked in an economic depression and they need vaccines and they need their people to get back to work. We're giving them an entire industry. They can source materials within their country. They can create jobs for assembling the kits, for distributing the kits. We even allow each country to name the vaccine as they wish. So in Indonesia, where we're working now, the president called it Vaccine Nusantara, which is the original name of Indonesia, Archipelago. And it doesn't matter to us. We're going to make the kits right in country. They're going to spend the vast majority, over 90% of the money that they put out, right in country. There's no other vaccine producer on the planet that can do that. And to be clear, many people don't realize how big 
Indonesia is. I think I I have a figure here of 287 million people. That's almost the size of the United States. That's right. It's a tremendously populous country, huge GDP, largest Muslim nation, for example, massive amount of people, and they need vaccines. These emerging markets are particularly struggling with COVID in an area where most people can't even afford masks. To get a vaccine out to the populace in a manner that can be made in the countryside, you don't need a multi-billion dollar centralized manufacturing facility. We don't need one here at Avita Biomedical in the United States, and they don't need one in order to produce it in their country. There is no centralized CapEx, if you will, centralized manufacturing facility. This is distributed, no buildup. It's just instant turnaround of kits that can be shipped out to the most remote corners of any nation where a small country clinic or a pharmacy can make it right there on a countertop. So today you're working with Indonesia. Tell us where that stands. Where are you in that process? You know, it's been pretty extraordinary to run a clinical trial halfway across the world. <laughs> we have, I've got um, nine of my staff living there, and we have finished our phase one clinical trial from which we extracted both safety and efficacy data. I am very, very pleased to say that that study showed that we have the lowest side effects of any vaccine in the world today. And those people that do have some side effects are of the lowest grade. So most vaccines in the world are grade one and two, 50 to 70% of people receive them. We have almost no phase two or grade two um, injuries or headaches and that type of thing. So we have the fewest side effects and of the lowest grade of any vaccine producer in the world. And so far, we're at 100% efficacy. Very, very excited. Our team is very, very focused and thrilled. And we are now just finalizing the phase two and three in order to jump into that. The phase one takes a long time. One has to be very, very careful, slowly ramp up in dosage and the number of people and uh, explore exactly what formulations work, what's the dose, et cetera. But now that that's done, we're ready to start running. So we are basically at the start line now with an unlimited amount of people that want this thing. We have just, I'm very pleased to say, just yesterday, we were invited to move to the presidential hospital, an army-regulated hospital, perhaps the most prestigious one in the hospital in the country, and this has been brought in to the um, military, which is a very, very, very nice endorsement. And it's also with that type of regimen that they have going to go very, very quickly now. So I'm very thrilled over the next couple of months. I think we're going to do some 30,000 patients. And I couldn't be happier to be able to treat those people, but also provide the validation and justification for global expansion. You know, I don't usually talk economics, much less global economics, with scientists. This doesn't happen a lot. <laughs> um, but it does, uh, it does cause me to think about one of our technician rules of life in the high-tech age. Um, and that is, 
if we have the technology to alleviate human suffering, it's inhumane to deny it to any human. And I believe you're really fulfilling that. It's a question of the tech breakthroughs in tech science and technology itself can get this kind of of relief, if you will, this kind of treatment, potentially to every human. I'm just thrilled that we've got a system here that allows unlimited and immediate global expansion. You don't have to be the government of a nation to buy our vaccines. You can be some benevolent person with a little bit of extra money that wants to treat their company or their village or their hospital, their neighborhood, their family, and order these kits. You can just go online, not yet, but as soon as we get our our commercialization approval or emergency use authorization, and order them, and they get shipped to you from within your own country and without delay, and anyone can get them. Now, hopefully, there will be those benevolent individuals in the world that like to take care of the individuals that can't afford anything, and we are one of those organizations. We are developing a model right now where we can actually sell to first world nations in a personalized medicine and make money there so that we can distribute to poorer nations with little or no profit. So we're really trying to not only make a vaccine that is accessible to everyone, that can be made everywhere, but also have it exceedingly or universally affordable. Well, let's not forget about spinal cord injury. (laughs) (laughs) What do you have to do to get back to that? (laughs) (laughs) I have to build a company that is so highly profitable and um, it has the resources to to basically bring along these smaller market indications. And honestly, that has been one of my guiding goals for getting into cancer and getting into COVID, as we gain momentum, as we gain valuation, a lot of people think, well, money's evil. It gets sequestered by individuals. That's not always the case. Money allows you to pull up those dis, you know, unfortunate. Money allows you to bring along those smaller market indications. You see, I have a manufacturing facility. I have quality control. I have clinical operations and oversight. I have financial departments. I can then use all that in order to bring along spinal cord injury so that the spinal cord injury company, if you will, doesn't bear those costs. It only bears the cost of the direct work on spinal cord injury but they share my laboratories, my personnel, et cetera, that really lowers the effective cost of that drug development for that small market indication. So I'm still trying. I'm trying to be in these big markets so that we can actually bring along the small markets and not leave the the smaller market indications behind, as is so often done in biotechnology. Hans, when was the last time you took a day off? <laughs> Just asking. Oh, uh, you know, I'll be completely honest and say I can't remember. <laughs> I knew that. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> Moira, I'm I'm definitely a geek and I'm definitely driven, but 
honestly, it's not hardship and boredom. I am thrilled every single day when I wake up. I am honored to have this machine around me, this company that I've built with my colleagues and my shareholders, my board, a, a machine that is fun to be in. And, you know, when you wake up out of bed and think, huh, I'm going to make a COVID-19 vaccine, and then you do, that spurs you on. And we have administered this to people. When you think, let's make a cancer vaccine, and then hundreds of people's lives are saved. I don't need anything more. You know, I'm not after money. I'm not after fame. I just want to help another person. And we are driving a ship here that has the ability to do that. Why would you ever feel burnt out, tired, bored? I'm just thrilled every day. I feel very honored to be able to be, you know, riding the ship. Well, Hans, it's been a real pleasure. And please know you're always welcome on Tech Nation. And please come back. See us anytime. Oh, I just so love it. I've so enjoyed this. Love your show. And thank you so much. Dr. Hans Kirstead is the chairman and CEO of Avita Biomedical in Irvine, California. More information is available at Avita Biomedical. That's Avita, A-I-V-I-T-A, avitabiomedical.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.